Association. 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 That was such uber ponage. Hello, fellow nerds. Welcome to the Nerd Association podcast from the WBNS FM studios in Columbus, Ohio. I'm one of your hosts, Mark Finch. And I'm the other one of your hosts, Daniel Barnett. And today, let's just get right into it. We have a, a whole lot to talk about. This day is one that we've been waiting for for almost two years. You would be forgiven for thinking that my favorite franchise of all time is Star Wars. I would forgive you for that. But we actually have yet to talk about the best franchise. I w- Fight me. <laughs> and with that sort of preamble, let's start the way we always do. Chops, what do you think of when I say, Ashknaz Derbataluk, Ashknaz Gimbatul, Ashknaz Thrakataluk, Agburzu Ishi Krimpatul? Ha 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 ha. I mean, you could convince me that was from Star Wars as well. <laughs> That's like, a good point. I, it, it didn't sound that much like it was something that couldn't be in Star all Wars. All right, all right. <laughs> but no, it's a. Uh, that's that's Lord of the Rings. It's reading the ring or the, something. Yeah, the script that's on the yeah. one ring. And yes, I am able to just pull that out of my pocket. <laughs> I know I'm not ashamed. Yes, today we're going to be talking about the Lord of the Rings. We're going to be talking about the movies and the books and comparing the two. We're, we're in this trend right now where we're doing double episodes on these big franchises. And of course, the Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring, the movie... Mm-hmm. just turned 20 years old as of December. Congrats, movie. Congrats, movie. Thanks for making us all feel old. And uh, the Lord of the Rings books in just a couple of years are turning 70. But uh, it, it, coincidentally, you know, we planned on doing this this show or these shows before we even knew that there was going to be a lot more information on the new Lord of the Rings Amazon Prime series, now known as The Rings of Power. So, Which is probably one of the main reasons we haven't talked about Lord of the Rings is because there just hasn't been like a, a full surefire reason right. to, which Star Wars just keeps coming, just keep and coming making and coming, stuff. Coming, right? <laughs> yeah, we knew that there was going to be a big conversation about it at some point, but finally we broke down and said, ah, we'll talk about that when we talk about it. Let's just do a Lord of the Rings episode for the 20th anniversary, and lo and behold. So we will be getting to that. Stay tuned. But I think it's worth noting, you know, we do this almost every time we talk about a a franchise or a, you know, an enduring franchise. For you, and I'll let you say more, but this, we recently sat down and watched the movies, Mm -hmm. the extended editions of the movies. You, for the first time, say more words about that? It was definitely the first time I've sat down and said, I'm going to watch all three of these movies, uh, normal theatrical edition or extended yep. edition either. But it's a pretty ubiquitous franchise, and it came out around the right time for me. I suppose I would have been a little younger than 10 years old when they were really starting to get super popular, right around that age. Um, and I think they're they're tame enough that they are for that age group. I think you can get through it, but it might be yep. a little dense. Um, and I don't know. I've just never been a big fan of period type pieces i know it's a you know it's it's a separate world of middle earth but it's it's got that knights you know medieval feel yeah yeah and that's never been like my cup of tea so i it was just never something i was super into but i had seen parts of the movies you know tnt at one point i think played them all All the the time time. yep 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 so i I, you know (laughs) it's seen parts of that and then i i watch a lot of youtube stuff on movies and lord of the rings comes up so i've seen Definite, like, what would be for most people if they hadn't seen it at all. Spoilers. So, like, there's things I knew in it, but it was fun 
to sit down and watch it and be like, I remember this scene. And then it pieces to get and then yeah, giving all that as I use this a lot, but connective tissue of all yeah. these things I know or I think I know or I've seen. And then it all comes together. And it's like, that's why that is that way. I One of the most distinct ones, I was like. When are they gonna meet those big tree guys? <laughs> and that was it was right around the yeah. time when it was gonna happen, and I was like, "There it is." <laughs> well, and and I insisted upon us watching the extended editions because I do think, as good as the theatrical, uh, as good as the theatrical adaptations are, there's a lot that's left out. I mean, there's still so much that doesn't make it into the movie for good reason. Um, but I just it was important to me that we sit down and watch. <laughs> 11 or 12 hours of movie. It's like watching a season of television. Yeah, um, but I just, you know, I read The Hobbit when I was the appropriate age to read The Hobbit, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, The Hobbit is a children's book. It is Tolkien's bedtime stories for his children that he transcribed and put down. And actually, a funny story, he was good friends with C.S. Lewis, who wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and all those books. Mm Mm-hmm. And there is an apo- who knows whether it's apocryphal or, or not, but there's this story that C.S. Lewis actually found the transcript of The Hobbit in Tolkien's desk and sent it to his publisher without his knowledge. And when Tolkien figured it out, he broke into C.S. Lewis's house and not threatened him, but basically was like, I can do this too, bud. Like, <laughs> how dare you? And then, of course, it became one of the, you know, the best-selling books of all time. And The Lord of the Rings is the follow-up to that. I think it's worth saying now for those who aren't familiar kind of with how the Lord of the Rings came about that, you know, Tolkien writes the Hobbit and it sets the world on fire and his publishers come back to him and say, we, you have to, you have to write a follow-up. You have to write a sequel or sequels to this book. And Tolkien is a linguist by trade and is very excited and involved in the interpretation of things like old English texts and lore. He's very much into Norse mythology and things like that. And so these few, these few sort of things happen simultaneously with him where his publishers are demanding he come to up with some sort of a follow-up to The Hobbit. He's also thinking about Britain not really having much of its own mythology. And, you know, Norse mythology is out there and Greek mythology and Roman mythology that there should be some sort of uniquely British mythology. And, and he starts thinking about, okay, what are the things that appear in folk tales and things in Britain, and he starts thinking about dwarves and elves and bringing in some of the the Norse elements that, of course, come to Britain with the Vikings. And so there's that separate part, right? There's the mm-hmm. Hobbit lives in its own world, and then this sort of mythology that he's writing as a separate project comes up. And he's also thinking about the elves and what the elves would speak and uses starts making these languages that he thinks of as being elvish and of course again he's a linguist he's a he's a a historical linguist and so he thinks about okay how would over the many thousands of years that we're going to presume elves live how would the language change how would there be different dialects if they lived in different parts of the world and he starts crafting this mythology around the elves to explain the differences in dialects in the same way that you see differences in dialects and languages yeah on earth so he has these three sort of thought experiments going simultaneously. It, the Hobbit, to him, was a story that was set in Britain some amount of time before, or in, in the world, I should say, because when he starts writing the follow-up to The Hobbit in his very earliest drafts, 
Bilbo gets on a boat and goes to England. <laughs> like, and, and so that's the story, right? And, and, uh, and so that, you know, obviously that isn't, doesn't stay in the, in the final draft. He, he gets this idea like, oh, actually I can take this grand British mythology that I'm coming up with and I can put it and the Hobbit together and I can take this Elvish thing and it can be part of the backstory. So he starts writing the Lord of the Rings at the confluence of these three roads Tolkien writes prolific notes and and letters, and he's very good at cataloging his letters. And after Tolkien dies in the 70s, his son basically makes his life's work to go through his dad's old notes. And Tolkien, in his lifetime, publishes, I think, five or six books. The Hobbit, The Three Lord of the Rings, and then several books of poetry, because Tolkien was big on writing poetry. I think Christopher Tolkien, his son publishes 20 more books from his father's notes and letters and things over the years. Mm. And Christopher Tolkien died a couple of years ago and the work's still going like uh, Tolkien just had a new book released in the last couple of months from notes that hadn't been covered before from another person who's been entrusted with at least a portion of the notes. It's like when a new Jimi Hendrix album comes out. It's exactly like that. Yeah. Or like, you know, they've had a new, I think Tupac had an album. It was like all of his old recordings and it's exactly like that. Tolkien did it first, right? <laughs> and so we're still getting bits and pieces of this mythology, and it's still being flushed out. But of course, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings are the preeminent ones. They were published in Tolkien's time. He was a super meticulous editor and writer of his own works. And because he was a professor of literature and of language, he treated his work like it was out of his own body. He often referred to it as though it was a translation he made of some folk tale because that's kind of how he thought of it. Mm-hmm. And so he was happy to be critical of it and to think about it critically in the sense of like critical reading, English reading, you know, which is very interesting and not the way that most authors approach their work. There are lots of letters that people send to him as fans where they ask like, oh, what, like, did, would Frodo have done this or why not this or why not that? And Tolkien, rather than just saying, well, this is what I meant, he would say, well, if you analyze the text and you take this passage from this book and you compare it to blah, 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 you'll find that this is why that happens in the world of Middle Earth. It wasn't, this is what my off, my, uh, you know, authorial intention was. It's, this is what the text bears. Because to him, he wanted to treat it like a historical right you know cataloging historical events and that's how history works when you're when you're writing it down so i think it's worth kind of knowing that up front if there's a reason that especially you know the hobbit reads very differently from the lord of the rings and the reason is that by the time he got to the lord of the rings he was quite serious about this being a history and so in some ways it reads like a history book and the silmarillion and those other appendant texts also read very much like history books. <laughs> so much so that most people don't get through things like the Silmarillion. You really have to love it to spend the time on They're it. They're not super accessible after a certain point. Is I mean, I don't I was think... wondering that because there's so much going on. And they do, you know, they do a lot of voiceover and everything, but it's produced so well that yeah. it doesn't annoy you in the movies, but there's a lot that, like, you, you almost have to take notes. And it's worth <laughs> noting that... The, the, the Silmarillion wasn't written as a book to be read. It was Tolkien's notes that his son like sculpted a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, when you get into those other texts, it's worth noting that the author himself didn't take the time in his life to make them publishable because he didn't intend for them to be published. (laughs) So anyway, um, we're let's now talk. So that's the background. That's what I think it's interesting for people to know before they dive into. And I think the other thing that I think is interesting is because of all that, that we've just talked about 
And because even the Lord of the Rings books themselves are fairly dense, I would argue that this is one of the few times I prefer people watch the movies before they read the books if they haven't been exposed to it yet. As I said, I read The Hobbit first when I was the right age to read The Hobbit. I read The Lord of the Rings when I was a teenager and liked them but didn't get it quite the way that I <laughs> that I do now, right? And then I saw the movies and I was like, oh man, now I can embody these characters and I can get really excited and especially with the extended editions. I really do think that in order to get pumped up for the sections of the book that are hard to get through, mm-hmm. it's good to have the movie in mind. It's good to know the plot and know, okay, we're spending three chapters with Tom Bombadil, who's a character you don't know because he doesn't show up in the movies for good reason. We're going to spend three chapters with Tom Bombadil, but then after that, some exciting shit's going to happen, <laughs> and I think it's worth having that. So like, uh, I think the way to do this is let's start with Fellowship of the Ring. Let's not necessarily go through scene by scene, but let's kind of d- dissect it. Tell me where where you were with Fellowship of the Ring. Tell me where you know, your questions or parts you liked or parts you didn't like or didn't understand or whatever. Maybe that's the way we get into this. My first and biggest question that at the beginning, because they go over the, you know, here's the world. These rings were given to, you know, a certain amount to men, a certain right. amount to elves. And then there was like, but there was... There was one ring, and then he's you know, big badass Sauron is coming in. And he's but then they they cut his finger off and they get the ring. But I was wondering, okay, so this ring is so important. I know that mm-hmm. just based on everything I know about it, anyways. But I'm like, as I get through it all, too, it's what are those other rings? Where are they? Why are are they powerful? Do they do anything? Do they make people invisible? Can you fly if you have that one? I have no idea because they don't. They they talk about these rings. They set you up. Right. These other rings, and then they they never mentioned or seen or do anything in the movies. So I think it's worth answering that question really thoroughly when we talk about the Rings of Power, the Amazon series, mm-hmm. because in fact that's what that show is going to be <laughs> right. all about. But I think it's worth to sort of touch on how it affects the Lord of the Rings movies and book. There are nine rings that are given to humans. There are seven rings that are given to dwarves, and there are three rings that are crafted for elves, and. It's worth just saying at this point that Sauron, before he uh, was beaten the first time, had the ability to shapeshift and make himself appear very beautiful. And he he came to Middle-earth as a man named Anatar, that name means the Lord of Gifts, and tried to basically seduce some of the most talented elves into helping him craft these rings. And he finally gets a guy named Celebrimbor, who is this elven smith and lives in this guild of elven smiths. And there's also, like, Tolkien never delves into this super deeply, but there's always kind of been this uh, feeling amongst a lot of the fandom that, in fact, Anatar, Sauron, and Celebrimbor were in a romantic relationship, that he literally seduced him into helping him with this project. And Celebrimbor doesn't know that Sauron is, you know, this dark lord. He thinks he's this hot elf dude, and they're going to do this art project together. And so they make these nine rings... Seven rings and three, and well, Celebrimbor makes the three rings in secret, which is, by the way, why in the Lord of the Rings, the there are people that have and wear the those elven rings because they're not as closely tied to the one ring. But the nine rings are given to powerful men, and they all become ring wraiths. So you see the outcome of that. Yeah, you're There's right. There's the nine that, ring wraiths. That's true. The Dwarven rings, and again, we'll talk about this really thoroughly, but they they don't affect the dwarves the way Sauron hoped they would. 
They just make the dwarves greedy, <laughs> greedier. And most of the rings are either eaten by dragons, because as we saw in The Hobbit, when you pile up a lot of gold in one place, it attracts dragons, or they get lost somehow. Okay. And Sauron ends up with some of them. Again, that's a whole other thing. The three rings, again, are held by elves and eventually worn. When you said they were eaten by dragons, I got this image of Sauron sitting there with a colander (laughs) under a dragon. (laughs) Waiting waiting for it to come out. I mean, you may not be that far off. (laughs) Sauron and Celebrimbor, or Anatar and Celebrimbor together, make these nine rings and seven rings. And then Sauron's like, okay, honey, I'm going on vacation for a little bit. And he goes to Mordor to craft his one ring in secret. The master ring, the one that control to control the bearers of the other rings. This was something I didn't. One ring, so I knew there were a lot of rings. Yes, and when I one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them. That's the same ring. Yes, I always thought they, they were, were describing separate. all of the rings in that because I knew like that part, just that first one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them. I thought there were like more yeah. lines to that describing what each ring did. No. And this, it gives, yeah, yeah, there's there's literally the one ring. And it gives you some insight into the power of the one ring, which is that it's, it, it corrupts the people that are wearing the other rings. It allows Sauron to know where they are at all times. Mm-hmm. It allows him to bind them to his service, which is why the ring wraiths, who are, by the way, the perfect example of how Sauron wanted the rings to work. He wanted people to wear them, covet them, become powerful, and then become his slaves, essentially. But anyway, Sauron goes and he makes this one ring. Celebrimbor makes these three elvish rings. They still appear in the movies, whether you know it or not. Elrond has one, Galadriel has one, and Gandalf has one because the former bearer gave it to him, saying, like, you're going to need this, bud. Anyway, I've now talked too much about that, but we'll get into exhaustive detail later. But yes, the bottom line is Sauron comes in, he has this plan to enslave Middle-earth by taking over its most powerful inhabitants and then using them to sort of corrupt everyone below. He gets found out because Celebrimbor makes these other rings. They go off like homing beacons when the one ring is made, and then then war breaks out because his the gig is up. And that's what leads up to that huge battle that you see in the in the prelude to Fellowship of the Ring that mm-hmm. Galadriel narrates. That and that's a war that even though in the movies it looks like it's a pretty quick thing, it goes on for years. Yeah. Like dozens of years of warfare. <laughs> and is that why finally, Sauron is pretty brazen out there? Like Well, he finally like, so the the elves and the humans finally take this battle to his front doorstep and he's in like is like, Well, I have to personally go out there now, don't I? Yeah. Like my lieutenants are screwing things up. I need to go take care of this. And of course he goes out and he wrecks shop for the most part. Yeah. And he kills to his to Sauron's credit, he kills the most powerful king among men and the most powerful king of the elves in that final battle. It just in doing so, he also gets himself killed. And the movie changes this a little bit. It's actually Isildur's father who kills Sauron and then a sealdor comes and cuts the ring off to make sure like ah, I don't I don't like that the corpse still has this thing on it. Yeah. I don't think that's going to bode well for us using the broken blade. But because Sauron is not mortal, he is and that's something you and I talked about while we were watching the movies like Sauron's kind of like an angel. He's kind of like a fallen angel. He's like a Lucifer character kind of. So even though his physical form is destroyed, He's not gone. It's just mm-hmm. going to take him some time to regain his form and come back. In the same way that Gandalf later does. Gandalf is also the same kind of being, a Maiar. And the reason that Gandalf can come back is because he's an angel and his physical form is destroyed, but his job isn't done yet. And so his 
the over gods or the demigods say like actually we got to send you back bud you're not done <laughs> so then elrond is the elf that's there yes. in that battle yes and that's something that as i was watching that one so then they go and then bilbo it's his 111th birthday birthday and the year stuff was was hard for me to to grasp onto like because i didn't realize that the elves lived for like thousands, thousands of, thousands years. of years um and then bilbo was 111 i was like okay that's obviously a lot older than normal life expectancy for for humans and right. hobbits are human adjacent yes 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 and uh but then how long ago was this battle and i know they go over that stuff but there's a lot of information coming um, at you they kind of do and they kind of don't yeah. and the thing that's confusing is sauron so there's ages of the world right there's the first age the second age and the story of the lord of the rings and the hobbit take place in the third age and Sauron's kind of big bit happens in the second age, but it's thousands of years before this last battle happens, right? A lot happens even between when he comes and makes the rings and when the, that the war of the last alliance is what that's called. Uh-huh. Um, because at the time it's considered the last alliance between men and elves. And then there's 400 years approximately between that battle and the beginning of the hobbit <laughs> and, and then so there's from, another from, and then there's another 60 years between the hobbit and the fellowship of the ring and as we'll discuss shortly there's even tw- a 20 year gap almost 20 year gap from the beginning of the beginning of fellowship to the moment when frodo leaves the shire in the movies that's not apparent but yeah. anyway yeah the, the years are weird and especially as you said because these same elves are involved in these big events it makes it seem like in your human brain all oh, these much be pretty close together but yeah for for men for humans it's you're talking 100 generations or more like as you go through it like and so that 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 helps that adds more context to like why people don't really know what's going on with this ring and why everything's so important and what the that makes a lot of sense now yeah and it's also one of those things that like not everyone knew about the ring lore even Uh at the time they didn't all know about like the average person didn't know who this dark lord and why he was so powerful and what that he had made these rings like it was are there only... people who know it as like myth and just don't accept like oh that's just old stories well i think even among people who know they think of it as like well that happened so long ago the, you know saruman is one of the people that says like the ring's been lost it's it washed away into the ocean even before he's corrupted he thinks oh well Isildur got killed in the river, and that's where the last place we knew where the ring was. So it must have just gotten washed into the ocean, since obviously if someone had found it, they would we would know about it. Yeah. Of course, they didn't count on Gollum's buddy finding it, and <laughs> and, and then Gollum going into a cave for 400 years. <laughs> they didn't count on that thing, right? But it's also just a little another tidbit. Galadriel, right, is the oldest person by far you're going to see in any of these stories. Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett. Yeah. Estimates are a little weird with elf years, <laughs> but she may be as old as 37,000 years old when the Lord of the Rings starts, because she's one of the elves that was born in elf heaven in like one of the first generations of elves and came over to Middle Earth. And most of her people either died in war or went back to elf heaven. She decided she couldn't. Elrond, though, interestingly, uh, is still really old, but he's like maybe 10,000 years old. Yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah. So when we're talking about years, one last thing on years. Yeah. Are is this written down anywhere or anything? Are we dealing with we know we have day and night. Is it twenty four hour days, three hundred and sixty five days in a year? Are we supposed to be living on that? Yes, you that should idea? be you should be assuming 
at this point in the story that years work the way you think years work, days work the way days work. There is an age before the first age where that's where the elf ages become complicated because those years, one of the years of the Valar was like nine and a half years in human reckoning, but then later Tolkien changed that to like 17 and a half years. So that's where the age thing becomes complicated. If you're really old, it becomes complicated. Okay. Um, but yes, do assume day-night cycles work the same, days of the week work the same. And they had a six-day week, as, <laughs> as you should. <laughs> as as Chops has deemed it. <laughs> okay, so now we're into the Fellowship Now we're into the, the actual, yeah, we're yes. into the story. It's funny, too. Like, I talked about how there's so much stuff from Lord of the Rings. And, like, you can almost live through some of the movies, especially the first one, mm -hmm. like, meme-wise. <laughs> and yeah. so the, the the Bilbo has the ring, and why not? Why shouldn't I keep it? Yeah. That one. So that was, like, my first, uh, like, oh, I know that. I, I know, know that, that part. And uh, But he willingly gives it up to Gandalf and uh, after his party where he uses it. Why... Is just because he doesn't wear very long, or has it not been like fully woken? Why is he able to use it to go invisible to pull that little trick on the people, but it doesn't quite offer the same amount of danger that it does when Frodo does? So Tolkien sort of half answers this question, and the answer is the ring gives empowers things about its user that are already powerful, right? So when you are a great king of men and you already have the power of oration and the power to command people, it turns you and and maybe like if you're one of the ring wraiths, like they're part of a race of men who are naturally long li lived. One of them gets a ring of power and it makes them even more persuasive and it makes them even more powerful in war and it makes them live even longer. The reason the hobbits seem to be able to handle it is because one, they don't have a ton of power to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. They're sort of hardy, simple folk. And so in that way, there's not a whole lot of power to amplify there. The one thing hobbits are really good at is blending in and sneaking around, which is why it also kind of eventually turns the king, the men invisible. Mm -hmm. But that's not necessarily a power that it's clear that would happen to everybody. We know it happens to hobbits because that's who we see have it. Yeah. But that's one of the reasons the, that Bilbo's the, able to, to hold blending to in it. is interesting to me for hobbits because Frodo and Sam have a lot going on, but, uh, Mary and Pippin, you could tell me either one did either of the things <laughs> that they do throughout the movies. And I would believe you. Yeah. I can't, it's harder for me to. And so that, and then also on hobbits, they're awesome. I would totally love to be a hobbit. You just kind of like do enough work and then you just drink and smoke and just hang yeah. out. That sounds fun. Yeah, no, it's great. And, and and to your point, like, Gollum lasted so long because he wasn't very powerful to begin with, right? And because what were his aspirations? He just went and hid in a cave. He just liked the shiny thing. He didn't even really know why he liked but it. But he was good at sneaking. And so it was like a him, kid finding right? a magazine under his dad's like a, It's like a crow, <laughs> yeah. you know? And then with Bilbo, again, Bilbo was a pretty humble guy. He loved hearth and home. He didn't have huge aspirations, so it doesn't bring out anything in him. Frodo's kind of the same way. Now, Frodo is impacted differently because at the same time that Frodo has the ring, Sauron is becoming more powerful, and he's starting to look for it. He and now, he's getting closer to Mordor, which also is a factor. Right, right yeah. near the As you progress through the story, the closer it gets to Mordor, the more uh, onerous it becomes, the more corrupting it becomes. Yeah. But that's the reason the hobbits can and handle And Gollum's it. playing mind tricks with them, too. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. But it's... Uh, 
yeah, I mean, that's the reason that hobbits are proven to be able to handle it in any. It's also why somebody like Gandalf refuses to even touch it mm -hmm. because he's a very powerful being. And if the ring was able to corrupt him even a little bit, it would wield a ton of power. He Look says at what it, does it would to wield Saruman. a terrible amount of power. Right. And he doesn't even have the ring, but just the idea of being near that kind of power corrupts him. And much <laughs> later, Faramir says of Boromir, like Boromir, the one of the strongest of men. We see Boromir kind of at his worst at, in fellowship, but one of the strongest champions of men would have been so corrupted by the ring so quickly. And we see that start to happen. Mm -hmm. He's a powerful guy. He's in a position of power. He's the, he's going to be the steward of the most powerful kingdom of men when his father, you know, croaks or hands it over to him. And so the ring is, has that power on him because he's in a position of power and because he would be willing to use it to fight Sauron. Right. Yeah. And so you can see that even in that instance, it corrupts him so quickly. It acts on him so quickly because he is in a position of power. Kate Blanchett, Galadriel, with one sort of inference that maybe Frodo would give the ring to her, turns into like a scary swamp lady. <laughs> you know what I mean? A dark queen, powerful and terrible as the dawn. Like she just is sort of, it's implied she might get the ring and it makes her kind of freak out for a second. Yeah. So you can see where these really powerful beings that know well enough either really want the ring because it'll make them super powerful or are terrified to even get close to it. Yeah, and then Gandalf even wants to keep Frodo kind of ignorant of what exactly is going on. So he kind of just gives him, they're just going to give him directions and pieces. Right. So go meet me here, but then he can't meet them because he gets into the confrontation with uh, Sormon. And then so yeah. As, yeah, as the movie progresses, and then I think you, you mentioned how it, it corrupts the people who are around it. It, that seems to be one of the reasons that after Boromir dies and the, the two hobbits go out onto the river on their own, Aragorn is like, we just let them go. Let them take care of this on their own because yeah. it's not going to work in this group. Yeah, I think Aragorn, I mean, you know, they, they show that scene in the movie and it's in the books too where Aragorn is offered the ring and refuses it. But I think his own internal dialogue is, I did it this time. Could I keep doing it? Yeah. Like if I was pressed over and over again to, you know, and again, even Aragorn, who's a powerful warrior at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, he's the chieftain of the Dúnedain Rangers. But like by the end of the movie, he's a much different person. He's in a position of power by the end of the movies. He's a champion of men. He's leading armies with the ring. If the ring had encountered Aragorn at that point in the story, when he was almost the king of Gondor, where he was fighting these armies, where he was that close to Mordor it might've been a different story. And of course he had the wisdom to realize that like the closer we get to our goal, I may not be able to turn away from it the way I can right in this moment, which is, is wisdom on his part, yes. right? Yeah. <laughs> it's the difference between him and Boromir. Also on the point of fellowship. And it's funny because I feel like mm, I like the movies more than I thought I would. They're still not my favorite, but I did there because one of my, bigger like things you know and i think it's like a cliche thing to say but uh it's what i thought about the movies from what i had seen is that it's just three movies of people walking somewhere well, yeah. and there's a lot of that sure and it's odd to me that fellowship is probably the most of that there's probably the least action of any of the three yeah. and i think it was my favorite it's it's most people's favorite it's a, and it's my favorite not that they're not all great but it's a really good movie yeah <laughs> it just um yeah, no, it is interesting because there's, and in the book, 
so I'd like to sort of make our comparison between the book and the movie here because Peter Jackson needs to be given credit for this, at least many things, but at least this one thing. In the book, there is 17 years between Bilbo's 111th birthday and when Frodo leaves the Shire to start taking the ring to Rivendell, which, you know, so there's 17 years in the book. Right. Because Frodo is the same age when he lives leaves the Shire that Bilbo was when he left the Shire the first time. And in the movies, it seems like it might be days or weeks between Bilbo's party and the time when Gandalf shows up and says, you need to get the hell out of here. Yeah. In, and then it seems like the journey is a week or two. <laughs> yeah, and it's fast-paced, and they're always on the run when in the books, you know, Frodo cooks up this plan over the course of a few years with Gandalf near the end of that 17-year stretch that he's going to sell Bag End and he's going to pretend to move to another town in the Shire to keep people from being suspicious. And one of his friends is going to live there and wear his clothes so that people think Frodo lives in that (laughs) house. And they're going to take this meandering path to Rivendell to figure out what to do with the ring, which in you know, you kind of alluded to they they so have very different than running away yelling, I'm going on an adventure. Very different <laughs> in that way, and also very different that in yeah, in the movies it's this really fast paced, high pressure thing. And Peter Jackson cuts out like ten chapters worth of material because it would have been so slow. It would have been so slow. It would have cut and it cuts out a character Tom Bombadil, who if you've read the books, like becomes beloved to you, but does not translate well into film. <laughs> And uh, is a lot of just poetry and singing songs. They managed to blend some of the elements from those sections into different parts of the movies. But Peter Jackson should be given credit because, as you said, otherwise it's just months of walking. Yeah. And you need that fast paced bit to get people back into it and back, you know, excited about it. Because it's sort of like a road trip movie, (laughs) which is generally a comedy, but that's kind of what this movie is. And so, no, he makes a lot of really good decisions. And yeah, are there things that it would be fun in some ways to see in like a triple extended edition of Lord of the Rings? Maybe, but I kind of think, again, books and movies are different mediums, and I think it's handled very well in the movie to make it watchable. Where We talked about this while watching it, like the, the difference of, you know, there's certain things that make sense to talk about in, in, for battles in a book, but then in a movie, you kind of have to make that work as just being more visually appealing. And I think if, and we're seeing this kind of now, I think if Lord of the Rings were made today, it would probably opt for a television show Absolutely. because of how prestigious television shows have become. Because you could throw a similar type budget and then you could add in an episode that is about these things that you had to cut from the movie because it just wouldn't make sense to bog it down. But that can work in a TV show. Yeah. And what's interesting is you talk about the battles being these big set pieces in the movies. Tolkien spends very little time talking about the battles in the books. He just, I mean, he describes that it happens and he gives you like the very broad strokes, but Peter Jackson understood like, this is the bit that people are going to want to see on the big screen. And they, they elucidate on that and draw them out um, into the longest battles that appear on film. You know, first it was first the two towers was the helms deep battle was the longest battle to ever appear on film and then he made the hobbit movies and battle of the five armies became the longest battle to ever appear on film which again in the in tolkien's books are a paragraph (laughs) they're not these big productions so i think that's a good move and i think that for the most part brie is handled about the same way aragorn's character is very similar the weather top scene is very similar. Like all that's not maybe not verbatim, but pretty close. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that stuff's a lot of setting it up, yeah. and you kind of have to do that right, or else it becomes a different story, partially. And an interesting thing that happens with Rivendell is, in the books, it's happenstance that they're all there at the same time. They're all coming... In in the movies, it's it's implied that Elrond has called everyone here because there's this big task. In the book, it's Boromir has these troubling dreams, and they they touch on that just a little bit in the movie where he's like, I I have dreamed of the eastern sky growing dark, blah blah blah. But Boromir has these troubling dreams, and he wants to go to Elrond, who's considered the wisest person in the world, to like help me interpret my dreams. Gimli and the dwarves come because an emissary of Sauron comes to the dwarven kingdom and says, hey, do you know anything about Bilbo Baggins and this ring? Our lord would really love that one ring. It's just a trinket to him. But if you give it to us, we'll give you these seven dwarven rings that the kings of old had. And so Gimli and his people are like, eh, that's fishy. Uh, let's go talk to Elrond about that. And Legolas and his folk from the, the woodland realm come because Gollum, who was they were keeping prisoner in their dungeons to let Gandalf interrogate him, Gollum escapes. And so, and of course, Aragorn is bringing these hobbits, but none of the other people know that that's going to be happening, and Gandalf never intended it that way, and neither did Elrond. And in the book, it's treated like, this must be fate that you've all come here at the same time, because this great task is now before us. Mm -hmm. And Elrond says the same thing that he does in the books that he does in the movies, which is, the ring can't stay here. Like, Sauron has assailed Rivendell before thousands of years ago, and we didn't do very well then, and he's more powerful now, and the ring can't stay. It has to keep going. And again, that scene plays out very much the same. But in the books, it's several chapters, because they also reunite with Bilbo, who tells all these stories, and everyone has their own story, and it's story, story, stories. It's all this, like, narrative that they manage to neatly tie up in the movie and just say, like, you were called here for this common purpose, yeah. but, you know. And the fellowship is formed again, good edits all the way around. And then there comes that sort of the really exciting bit, right? Going, going off into the wilderness and crossing the mountains and going to Moria. So yeah. thoughts. When I think of the fellowship, there's a few things that stand out to me. One, I really like the, the hobbits before they really fully know what they're in for in that bar scene. Yeah. And again, I don't know which one it is, Mary or Pippin, but they come over and they go, what's that? And he goes, a pint. <laughs> and so they're, they're, they're being merry and they're yeah. drinking. And then he's like, of course I know somebody named Baggins. Frodo Baggins right, right over there. there. It's like, you idiots. <laughs> I really like that part. Um, they don't do, I, I can't even remember for sure. I'm sure you would know. Uh, but th he puts the ring on a couple of times, maybe three times in mm -hmm. the in the in Fellowship, and I don't think he really does it ever again. So you don't get in Fellowship, you get pretty much your whole lot of those like static, weird, yeah, shadow world when you're invisible with the ring on. Yeah, well, he he's tempted to do it the first time they encounter a ring wraith. He doesn't. But yeah. He's tempted to, and then the bar scene it happens accidentally, and then on Weathertop where he finally gets stabbed, and. To give you the simplest possible version of that, in Tolkien, there is the physical world and there's the spirit world. And there are some beings that live in both worlds at once. And the Maiar, the angel people, the ringwraiths live in both worlds. Some of the elves actually live in both worlds. And those people can see him when he's invisible? Yes. And okay. when he puts on the ring, he gets transported into the spirit realm and out of the physical realm, which is why... He becomes invisible to most people. But yeah, why the ringwraiths can still see him clear as day and stab him. And um, they show this a little bit in the movie, but in the books, like 
when Frodo has the ring on, he can also see the elves that have been from like had have been to elf heaven. They glow when he's got the ring on because they have they also live in that world. Okay. So yeah, that explains a little bit about the sort of how the power of the ring works and why those sort of weird shadowy staticky sequences happen. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the only other time he puts it on again is in Mount Doom Mm -hmm. because he figures out pretty quickly, like this is a bad idea. (laughs) Bad shit happens when I put on the (laughs) ring Uh, and it, and it corrupts him a lot more quickly when he does. Uh, When they're in Rivendell, which I call elf town Mm -hmm. and the, the way they film that because it, you know, you think he's, he's at risk of dying and they, yeah. they have to take him there to, to be safe. This confuses me outside of the movies, but it's, uh, it's Tyler, the Liv Tyler, Liv Tyler. And for, I, I thought it looked like Liv Tyler, but then I was thinking like, no, it's, it's Evangeline Lily. And then I was like, no, she's in, in the, the Hobbit movies, but it took me until the end of all three movies <laughs> to figure out to like, be oh, like yeah. it is Liv Tyler. Like I, uh, that one got, but it, she takes him. She takes her out of there. But then when he wakes up, I I don't know if this is done on purpose or just because of the way Elf Town is supposed to be, but it's so like ephemeral and bright mm-hmm. and you're you question for a second, it's like, did he not make it? Is this it's filmed like how they film the perfect sorority in a college movie? It's filmed like the end of The Wizard of Oz, right? Yeah. When Dorothy wakes up and all the people are still there. They film it this way, and in the book it's made even that much more clear. Ju- kind of jumping ahead to Return of the King, Frodo wakes up after Mount Doom, thinking he's in heaven. And keep in mind, he doesn't know that Gandalf has come back to life. So when he sees Gandalf, he assumes he's in heaven. And then Gandalf has to kind of explain to him, no, you're back in Rivendell. You're alive. So am I. Like, <laughs> And so there's you get a touch of that the first time they go to Rivendell. But yeah, I mean, you're right to be confused. Frodo himself is confused. Like, did I die? What's going on? <laughs> so moving forward in Fellowship, the other thing, the... Especially Mary and uh, Pippin, they uh, they keep kind of messing things up as they're trying to go on this journey. You know, yeah, he's the one who points out. I know somebody named Baggins, as I mentioned, and then they he one of them is throwing rocks into the. Oh, it's always Pippin, bud. It's always Pippin. And is it Pippin the one who knocks the thing down the well? And it's like one. It's like yeah, be a little bit more careful, but also hey, you wiser, bigger beings. Maybe let the guys know that, like, hey, let's we're trying to be quiet while we're in this mine, or don't throw rocks into it. There could be some sort of monster. In. Right. I think they could do a better job of that, and I think it's a little unfair to Pippin that they, they that he always messes up, and then they're just like this idiot. I mean, Pippin makes good eventually, which we can talk about kind of down the road. But like, yeah, no, you're right. They. Pippin, in one way, is impetuous and kind of dumb. But, yeah, these hobbits have lived super sheltered lives. Why is he supposed to think Why that throwing supposed- rocks into a river is bad? Yeah, like, I mean, it's just a random thing. He's <laughs> bored and he's throwing rocks in the water. And, like, yeah, somebody... And they do tell him it just... But I also, you know, it's one of those things where, like, if you know better, you don't think you have to tell somebody, yeah. hey, <laughs> don't disturb that super spooky-looking water that is everyone knows is cursed. And, you know, hey, we're talking about how... This place is probably full of goblins and orcs, and we have to, you know, we have four days to get through here without being noticed. Maybe don't throw a rock down a well <laughs> just because you're bored. No, you're right. And, and of course, it's Pippin doing that that it's implied that wakes up the Balrog mm-hmm. that, you know, then Gandalf has to fight. 
Oh, I missed two more meme moments as I, I passed over. The, one does not simply walk into more. That one, which is probably the most famous one. And my axe, my sword, my bow. Oh, that one. Yeah. And uh, the third one is, uh, it's not really a full-on meme, more, maybe more of a gif, but when Bilbo goes back for the ring and he like turns into like a ah, goblin yeah. for a second. Which, which even when you know is coming is like yes. startling and if i you know i'd say the first few times i watched it even though i knew it was coming it was like ah god because then you get to the next one and you've got you shall you you shall not pass mm-hmm. and the, the gandalf standoff there which i guess for some people probably i mean it, it holds weight because of what it does for them and the story and everything but like i know he's coming back yeah I, I if you'd read the books you would obviously know i wonder in real time, how people felt about that, that didn't know, or was it still just something there was, you knew? I mean, trolls are trolls, right? And even back then, it was like, well, Gandalf, like, Gandalf's death doesn't... George R.R. R. Martin is one of the people that says this, which, by the way, I know you're a Game of Thrones guy, but George R.R. R. Martin can suck it. Because he's the one that says this about Gandalf, and he's the one that's like, but what about Aragorn's tax policy? And it's like, no one gives a flying... <laughs> F. It's probably better than Sauron, so yeah. that, that we can s- settle with that. But anyone who has the... And yeah, at the time, there were some people like, well, it's, it makes Gandalf's sacrifice cheap that he just comes back. Dudes and dudettes, he's an angel. Like, he's not a human being. He's a thousand years <laughs> old, and he has one job, which is to keep Sauron from becoming the baddest MF. And he, so he had to come back. And by the way, there's precedent for it. They cut him out of the movie... It's a gender politics thing. I don't know if it's a bad thing, but the thing that Arwen does to save Frodo is actually done by an elf named Glorfindel in the books. And Glorfindel is one of the other few elves or beings in history that have single-handedly killed a Balrog. And he died doing it, and it was so badass that the demigods were like, that was badass. We're going to send you back. (laughs) And so he goes, but he comes back to life and he regains physical form and he's there to help with all these events. He's one of the biggest enemies that Sauron and the Witch King know him by name, and they would fear Glorfindel because he's bested at least the Witch King in battle. And Gandalf is given the same. There's the, again, there's precedent. Gandalf does the same thing. He kills one of the most powerful beings on Middle Earth, and he's given the special honor one to go back because he did that thing, and two because he's still got a job to do. Mm. And so there is also an argument, by the way, that Pippin doing what he did might have made it so that the whole world was saved because it made it so that Gandalf came back and was more powerful, whereas he wouldn't necessarily have had the long that game. Yeah, the Pippin long knows game. what's going. Pippin on. knows what's up. So, but no, people did complain about that at the time, as you say. If you know anything about the lore, if you read the books, you know that there's a reason Gandalf gets special treatment. He's not just some dude, and it's not cheap. It's important to the story that he was willing to sacrifice himself to keep the ring mission going and still had work to do so they brought him back and it allowed him to supplant saruman who by the way was also an angelic being like gandalf that was sent for the same purpose got super corrupted and stopped doing his job so someone had to take his place we were we were talking about the boromir confrontation and then they then to wrap that up and this wraps up the movie basically yeah. they they fight a, a team of orcs there yeah, the a, a battalion yeah um orcs are born from mud <laughs> In a mine? No. <laughs> so, without getting... Again, as if anything with these movies and books, there's a long story. But right. the short version is, at the beginning of time, right after the elves were made, uh-huh. because the elves were made by the overgod, Eru Iluvatar, and they're called his chosen, some of them decided to follow Morgoth, who is the big bad who was the boss of Sauron. 
and the elves that decided to worship and follow Morgoth instead of the good path became corrupted and became orcs. Okay. So that's how it started, but then no, other than that, they sort of breed naturally. Urukai are this sort of necromantic creation that combines powerful men who can walk in daylight and are, you know, more stout and hardy. Mm-hmm. And elves, well, orcs, who are the corrupted elves. It's, so it combines, it's essentially genetic, like, DNA. It's like eugenics in a way. So Urukai are made out of mud pods because they're an abomination. Okay. That is, like, specifically created in this sort of un, even more unnatural way. But no, regular orcs just okay. They're just do, do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, and then... Um, we talked about how they go their separate ways and Aragorn is like, no, let the hobbits go. They need to do this on their own. But that scene also, cause I, you know, you know, these characters like, at least for me, cause they said, I knew a, a fair amount. So I know Gimli and Legolas and Boromir and Aragorn are, and I know the hobbits. Right. And, uh, but when he, when Aragorn kills that orc, like the big, yeah, the, the big one who seems one. like he's in charge. Yeah. I was like, Oh, so he's like a, He's like a real tough guy, yeah. like in a good way, not like a not a fake tough guy. Like actually, like, he's pretty he's pretty badass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like so that was a new that was one of those learning moments for me that like okay, I I can get behind Aragorn. Aragorn that. also so one of the things that happens when you watch these movies with a person who's seen them like a ton of times is they'll say like let you know little fun trivia facts. Uh-huh. There's a famous one in Two Towers that everyone kind of jokes about, but another one is that in that scene when. Lurtz is the name of that Urukai, which they never, t- I mean, any, don't ask me how I know that, but Lurtz throws that dagger at him that he, that Aragorn had stuck in his thigh and Vigo Mortensen, like that almost hit him in the face. <laughs> him swinging his sword to deflect that is actually Vigo Mortensen trying to not get stabbed. And they kept the cut in because Vigo Mortensen also badass, super so badass that he's playing yeah. the character. Vigo Mortensen just would carry his sword around with him everywhere he went in New Zealand, and like several times got stopped by the cops because he would just go around in his costume looking super beat up <laughs> with a sword and just like go to get a coffee, and they'd be like, "Um, actually, sir, like you can't walk around with your sword looking menacing." But yes, that is where you start to realize one. Aragorn is he's a badass fighter but also he turns down the ring Frodo offers him the ring and he says no mm-hmm. um and that tells you something about Aragorn's character which is important to you know see going forward in the movies Aragorn is this in a in a generation or an age or whatever a whole lifetime of toxic masculinity Aragorn is a really good example of what it's like to be like what positive masculinity looks like, right? He's strong, but he's also vulnerable. He's empathetic. He's a healer and a fighter. Like, and and in that he's moment, the Crayola crayon of masculinity. And in that moment that you witnessed, where I cried at the end of the movie, where he talks to the hobbits, which we'll get to, but like he's he's Aragorn's a really good sort of character to aspire to. And yeah, you start to see near the end of Fellowship, like okay, there is more to this guy. He's not just some scrubby-looking ranger. There is yeah. more to him as a person. Crayola crayons are non-toxic. Crayola crayons. Oh, see, sorry. <laughs> I, went right yeah, over Yeah, I, I see you didn't get went, it, so I wanted went, it. Went I, right wanted it to, I wanted it to. Jokes are really there. best when you have to explain them, I find. Um. <laughs> okay, so that's basically the end of Fellowship. Yes. Again, I think it's my favorite. Of, I, you know, I've only sat down and watched them all the way through. It's most people's favorite. Ones, but there's yeah. just a lot going on. I, yeah, I really like it. There's... 
It's I think I it's like all- the four hobbits together too, which you don't get like at all after that. Right. I think it's also because you spend some time in the Shire and a lot of people who are into the Lord of the Rings are like, wow, that does seem pretty good. Right. <laughs> that seems pretty idyllic. And of and, and Gandalf the Grey is the better Gandalf. Gandalf the Grey is the better Gandalf. He's the one to to emulate or to like admire more. Yeah. He's very cool. And I do think by like there are people have mixed feelings about the Hobbit movies. Mm-hmm. Um, even Peter Jackson has mixed feelings about the Hobbit movies. But one of the cool things about the Hobbit movies is you get to spend all that time in the Shire and you get to spend more time with Gandalf the Grey, which is pretty cool. So. So yeah, so that's fellow. I will say I like these movies enough after watching them that I will probably watch the Hobbit movies now. It's worth it. And again, like the things that can pe- people complain about with the Hobbit being movies being different than the book. I mean, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think the decisions they make to add things in one are based on sort of logical guesses on how they would be, and. Two is well documented that Peter Jackson intended to make them two movies, not three, and was mm-hmm. forced by the studios to make them three. Well, the other one was three. Well, right. It's a trilogy, <laughs> and you can make a ton of money off of it. But, I mean, I think those movies are super fun, and they're like The Hobbit. They're more fantastical. They're more uh, closer to a children's narrative in a lot of ways. They're mm-hmm. more sort of like uh, innocent in that way in, lo- in a lot of parts. And so I just don't... I don't know. It's, we've talked about this with a lot of fandoms. Like, just appreciate that these things exist. They don't have to be perfect. Yeah. Just appreciate Would you rather have exist. no movies? Right. Just appreciate <laughs> that they exist. And yeah, so they expand on some parts. So did the Lord of the Rings movies. Everyone loves the Battle of Helm's Deep, even though, again, that's handled in a few paragraphs in the book. Mm-hmm. Like, chill out, everyone. Just enjoy stuff. Hello, fellow nerds. It's your other host, Daniel Barnett, once again here in the editing booth tackling these megasodes in this case the lord of the rings megasode and this is going to be a two-parter as promised next time we will be tackling two towers and return of the king and in a future episode we're going to talk about the silmarillion and uh, what we know so far about the rings of power thank you so much for listening if you want to tell us what your favorite parts or memes from the lord of the rings are would love to see that on our twitter feed you can find us at nerd that's n-e-r-d underscore a-s-s-o-c on twitter you can also email us let us know what you'd like to hear on the show or even come on and be one of our nerds you can do that by reaching out to nerd at gmail.com Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next week.